You may be seated. I was charged to mention to you, uh, off the subject obviously, but those who are interested in going with us next fall to uh, what we call the footsteps of Paul, Greece, and Turkey, and then also a secondary part of that is a footsteps of Jesus, a tour of Israel. Two separate tours, you can do both, you can do one or the other, but the, the Greek one is already full, um, so we're starting a waiting list and trying to see if we can get more seats. Um, the Israel one still has uh, a lot of slots open, and so anyway, for those of you who are interested or care, that's the word right there. Anyway, you know, for millennia, um, it took literally millennia for uh, people to change the way they thought, the way they believed, and even the way they lived and acted. They, I mean, the very definitions of what was true and false stayed pretty static throughout human history. There were certain general things that people all agreed to. And really, if you look at the law systems of every nation that we know of in the history of the world, they kind of followed the or paralleled the Ten Commandments. People agreed that adultery, theft, lying, stealing, cheating, murder, that was a big one. Uh, people generally agreed that these were, were things that you should avoid and that there should be a reverence towards God no matter how they defined it. But we live in a very different time, obviously, today where things are changing so rapidly it almost feels like they change overnight. Uh, one of the things that keeps many of us addicted to the television sets and the news reports is because we're always shocked by some new you know, object floating across our territory and, and uh, the, whether or not we're gonna decide to shoot it down or what, how we're gonna react. Uh, but part of this is not just something that we sense, it's something that has an actual substance to it. I mean, particularly if you begin to go back and look at the role that the Supreme Court has played in our country over the last several decades. For example, in, in 1962, the Supreme Court said that it was no longer legal to pray in school. Uh, that was kind of crazy because I went to, you know, I started school in 1955. Uh, I was at the age of, I was at the age of, of one, no, uh, at the age of 1955. And, and prayer was just an integral part of what you did in school until 1962. And suddenly what we had been doing for at least six or seven years of my young life was now something that was considered to be illegal. Uh, in 1963, a year later, they banned the Bible and said it could no longer be used in publication. And so suddenly the idea of being taught scriptures in school, public school, was something that was outside the boundaries. And then, of course, most startling was when in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court really kind of uh, created out of whole cloth this fictionalized idea that there was a constitutional right for a woman to uh, eliminate the life, to literally murder her own unborn baby. That was followed in 1980 by a banning of the Ten Commandments from any kind of public plaza or so forth, which you know, had stood in courthouses and, and courtyards around the country. And then in 2013, the Supreme Court again basically repealed the DOMA Defense of Marriage Act, followed in 2015 by the legalization of same-sex marriage. And finally, in 2020, most people didn't even see it coming, essentially in what's called the Respect for Marriage Act, uh, our legislator passed a law that said that you can't uh, forbid any kind of marriage. In other words, if you're living in a country where they authorize or allow uh, transsexual marriages, uh, then that has to be upheld by the United States. In other words, if you get married in Costa Rica as a transsexual, it now says that if you're in, they move to the United States, every state in the union has to recognize that as a valid union. Uh, we're just waiting for somebody to challenge that in court because it's pretty um, really over the top. But the whole point is that what we find that we're left with, and it's interesting because if you look at all these changes in our laws, and then you look at the increase at the same time of all sorts of what we call social lesions, these things where crime, pregnancy, out of wedlock, single parenting, all these things that begin to multiply, which are real serious 
problems culturally, economically, socially, and so forth, when we begin to see the proliferation of things, it's almost like they are in sync with one another, that the more that our legal system pushed away from the Bible and its teachings, the more problems we begin to accrue as a culture. And it's, it's really striking when you begin to do the comparative. Because essentially what we've moved from is really a culture of hedonism and, and vulgarity. That sexuality has become so uh, prevalent. That's why I call this message the sexualization, really, of the family, of the culture, of the nation. The idea of sexualization means that you put sex as being the defining characteristic of people and situations above and beyond everything else. That you might say that we've become a culture that's sexually obsessed. We become like Sodom, who, or even the pre-flood period where it says their every thought was continually evil, continually wicked. That we begin to see all of life and interpret life through this crazy lens. And if you think I'm exaggerating, all you have to do is just sit and watch the commercials on TV for a few minutes and you begin to realize this is something that's obsessive. I even think about these weight loss programs, why these people are obsessed with getting back to the size they were when they were 16. You know, I don't want to do that. I look like a Q-tip, so I don't want to get that. But the whole point was the idea that we have to somehow acquire this, this image of ourselves that's winsome and attractive and sexual. And, and what we've changed is from a culture that focused on character to culture that focused on personality. In 1990, Stephen Covey was the one who really did the research on looking at the history of success literature in the history of the United States. Fascinating study he did because he said, if you look at the first couple of hundred years of American history, when you ask the person, what's the key to success, they usually would write books and talk about honesty, hard work, self-discipline, self-control, you know, self-sacrifice, all the kind of things that you hope your neighbors are focusing on. But he said, when we came into the 20th century, especially the latter 20th century, it shifted from character to personality. In other words, what is the person that you present, the image that's outside of you? It's as if we have abandoned who we are on the interior in order to present something on the exterior that would be attractive like bait. That there's this idea that somehow we have to use our charm and our charisma and our physical beauty so that even to this point we are so obsessed with who we are physically that we literally are finding people dedicating tens and thousands of dollars, maybe even millions of dollars, in having all sorts of surgical procedures done on their bodies just simply to make them not look their age. I'm sorry, Martha Stewart is 80. Don't tell me she hasn't had work. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, I liked her Betty went better when she was about cookies, but now I'm going to buy her beauty secrets? Well, I can't afford a surgeon. So the point is, we have this, this obsession within our culture that if we can fake it, then we can make it. And what's lost is that suddenly the content of my character that Martin Luther King cared about and talked about is no longer the thing that people are most concerned with. What they're most concerned is, is what they can externalize for public consumption. And I would like to say it's only limited to people who live in the Hollywood zip code, but it's really even within the church, that churches and pastors, and I mean, I get these emails of how we can do a better job on selling you to come in here and give us your money, how we can get you to participate in what we're doing, how we can fundraise more effectively, and it's all about putting on this presentation that basically satisfies where the consumer within Christianity today finds him or herself. And in a way, it's, if I can use this term kind of advisedly, it's almost a bastardization of Christianity. That we actually begin to create this, this thing we call Christian that really bears no real resemblance to Christian. It's not part of the family. It's something that's born illicitly. And before long, and generations grow up, and that's what they think about it. So that when we even have times where we gather in worship, increasingly the concern is how good it is. A friend of mine, uh, who in fact was a musician, a worship leader, and, and all that sort of stuff, used to hang out with the Beatles, he was telling me that he had a lady come to him after one of the services and said, Pastor, the worship wasn't very good this Sunday, was it? And he looked at her and said, Madam... 
it wasn't for you. As our, my friend Terry Clark often says, we are the choir. It's not up here, it's, it's out there. But we've lost that in the church. We've, we've become all about how we can perform, what kind of presentation we can make, how we can impact people in a way that makes them want to check the boxes that we have given to them. And what's we've become lost is that things change. Suddenly where free speech has become pornography. Education is all about how well do you entertain people. It becomes the pursuit of pleasure as being the supreme purpose in life. Adultery, same-sex marriage, abortion, transsexuality have all been decriminalized. And now there's even an earnest effort to not only legalize, but promote the idea of pedophilia. The idea that basically these people aren't perverts, they're just Minor attracted persons. How do we get here? And how do we get there so quickly? Well, again, I, I hate to be wonky, but I think that sometimes we don't understand how the current has carried us, and so we don't realize how far down the stream we have actually traveled, how far we are from the source of life as a culture and maybe even as individuals. As I said, we've been left with this kind of cultural hedonism. And hedonism is this idea that uh, the chief purpose of life is to experience pleasure. That's what being hedonistic is. That it's all about me experiencing pleasure. And anything that doesn't bring me pleasure, I want to put out of my life. So I want to focus just on those things that please me. Now, the idea of pleasing God is an abstraction to many people. If it pleases God, that's fine. But you see, when I was first a savior, saved by the Lord, the thing that really struck me was that it was all about pleasing him. As Mylon Faber once put it so well, he said, pleasing you is what pleases me. And he was speaking of God. But we flipped that, haven't we? We made it about pleasing me instead of pleasing God. That's the first thought. Do I like it? Behaviors that for millennia were deemed as being sick and wrong have become not only something that's thinkable, but in some cases even desirable. In fact, they are being vaunted as the next step in the progress of human evolution. That those who choose to live a homosexual lifestyle or envision a transsexual change of their sexual identity are really just reflecting the natural progressive growth of evolution. Because evolution means we go from uh, primordial ooze into use. It's just, uh, you know, this, this just, just took a time to get you there. And people are still on that same path. Now, it's not surprising that many of us are experiencing psychological whiplash. Uh, common sense has been replaced with what they call community standards that aren't very standard and nobody voted for. They were imposed by powers that be, and those who object will find themselves being censured or silenced or canceled or shadow banned, and certainly they will be branded as haters, bigots, pariahs, people from an unenlightened, ignorant, and narrow-minded, knuckle-dragging past. You basically, they would say, still have too many Neanderthalic genes in your system, although most of us have 4% Neanderthal genes. Once again, it, it, it all began, as I said last week, in the ivory towers. And the thing about the ivory towers of academia is that they can have all sorts of ideas and say and write and all sorts of things, but they don't really have to live with those ideas. And if they're proved to be wrong, they'll just simply say, well, it was just an idea, it was a conjecture, that's how we viewed it at the time. But they never take ultimately responsibility saying, this is what we've done. And basically, that, as we talked about last week, was the total embrace of the concepts of humanism. And if you're not familiar with humanism, it's the belief that man, not God, is a center, the supreme ruler of the universe, and that secondly, pleasure is the primary purpose of the human animal. And I emphasize human animal because this lies at the foundation of how they view mankind that we are essentially an animal 
who has evolved past other animals, but nonetheless, what drives and motivates us is the same kinds of things that drive and motivate an animal. You know, this started back in the 1890s. I mean, Harvard University decided that the Ten Commandments was out of date and the Constitution needed to be rewritten. That long ago, they decided it was a temporary piece of paper. And as a consequence, have been dedicated to that purpose even to the, the, the present day. Um, it's interesting that they concluded that um, if you were educated, you would reject the commands of the Bible and its edicts. They are relics of an ancient ignorant past when mankind believed in gods and spirits and other myths, as they would put it. And as the 20th century dawned, this imagined age of ignorance, that's how they looked at men up until the present time. And I'd say it's imaginary. As Lewis said, it's a chronological arrogance. We simply think we're smarter than people came before us. I thought it was fascinating reading recently that there was an attempt to copy the Wright Brothers airplane, to remake it just like it, and they couldn't figure out how to do it to make it work. You know, those highly evolved bicycle makers were able to create a vehicle that would actually fly, and we can't figure out exactly how they pulled it off because we're so smart. They probably don't realize that they just put up a Chinese balloon. That was all it was. But with this, we find that uh, the dawn of the 20th century, this ignorance, as they saw it, was to be replaced with... Uh, science and with rationalism based upon the specious argument that if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. If you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. If you can't measure it, it's not real. So then when you talk about the heart of man, the soul of man, those, those non-tangible dynamics that everybody knows we have, we, we all understand that there's a part of us that isn't governed by time, that's kind of eternal in its essence. In other words, when you say to somebody who is 100 years old, how do you feel? They say, inside I feel the same, but my body no longer cooperates. It's the vehicle that's breaking down, but the soul doesn't change. And I even tell atheists that I have conversations with, I say, can you conceive of yourself being non-existent? We cannot conceive of ourselves. The, the very father of philosophy, Rene Descartes, said his main fundamental premise was, I think, therefore I am. In other words, he said self-consciousness is the most unique defining characteristic of human beings. As I watch Caesar the dog whisperer guy on TV, I find that fascinating. He makes this very interesting point. A dog doesn't have a historical memory. He lives in the present. You and I have historical memory, don't we? You remember that guy that did the thing that he did to you when he did that thing and how you're going to get even one day somehow with whatever you're going to... <clears throat> you're replaying these tapes. You're defining the present by what happened in the past. But you see, animals don't do that. Man is this unique creature who has this awareness of himself. He understands past. He understands the present. And he also can imagine the future. I've had a number of dogs. I love dogs. Um, they all were unfaithful and died on me. But I never had one of them who ever wanted to talk about his retirement plan. <laughs> but in this new community of man, led by the educated and elite enlightened ones, thoroughly trained in what we call today modernism, they told us that the modernism's goal was to replace traditional beliefs with modern ideas like <coughs> excuse me, Darwinianism or Freudianism. The Bible, especially biblical morality, were just one of many ancient traditions that were, well, kind of antique, not very relevant. And truth no longer became absolute and unchanging, but... Truth was relative. It was situational. And, and, and most of all, it was completely personal. You remember the phrase, you have your truth, I have my truth? <clears throat> you know, if two cars meet, one going downhill and one going uphill on a one-lane lane, lane road, whose truth prevails? 
<laughs> the simple reality is they can't both have the right of way. One of them has to yield to the other. That's just a physical reality. And the idea of you have your truth and my truth is fine as long as you're not piloting the plane that I'm in. If you're a pilot, I want you to be buying into the same truths that the builder, the maker, and the airlines, and, the, and everything else holds to as being truth, because if it doesn't, it will lead to death and destruction. In other words, it's, it's a way of explaining life that's so incredibly thoughtless and impractical, and yet we are told that if you envision yourself being another gender, it's just a matter of being the little choo-choo who said, I think I can. I think I can, I think I can. As one, <clears throat> I think Matt Walsh was talking to a young lady who said that she was basically a man trapped in a woman's body. He said, well, why don't you envision being a different race? Well, I can't do that. Why not? <laughs> that would be easier than changing your sex. You see, there are certain natural limitations that you have to begin to say, I'm no longer going to use my brain to reason this. I'm going to instead go with whatever the contemporary view is. These kind of crazy views would have stayed in academia where, were it not for the indefatigable work of a man named John Dewey, the father of modern education. Today, he is considered by many of his followers as being, quote, the Aristotle of our age, not a philosopher, but the philosopher. Most people have no idea how that the schools that they attended really were founded on his concepts, that every teacher, even today, that goes through teacher training is basically being inculcated into the theories and the views and the opinions of John Dewey. The guy in his 70 years of, of a professional career wrote over 700 books. He was the head of the American Psychological Association, head of the American uh, Philosophical Association. He was one of the leaders within the American Teachers Federation. He lectured and he spoke. And basically what he felt was most important, being a total humanist, is that educators had to move from the strictures of tradition and to religion into what he called an intellectual democracy of ideas based upon not scripture, not reality, but on majority consensus. He argued that children should be allowed to freely experience the world around them without the interference of adults or their over-influence. In fact, literally, one of the things he wrote was, there should be no effort to subordinate education to transcendent values or dogmas. In other words, don't force people to limit their view to what they are taught about transcendent or spiritual realities like the Bible and so forth. You can't let them follow any kind of dogma or any kind of value that comes from God. You have to push that aside and let them just simply, you know, find their own way. Remember the story of <clears throat> Samuel Coleridge who had a visitor come to him and as he was, they were sitting having coffee, the man went on at great length about how that children should not be forced to, to believe anything. They should just be allowed to find their own belief system and to figure it out on their own. And Coleridge just sat there listening quietly and finally when he got done with him, got done, he said, would you like to see my garden? And the man quite readily said, yes, I'd love to see your garden. So he opened the back door and let him out and there was a field of weeds and his man said, well, this isn't a garden, it's just a field of weeds. He said, well, it's my garden, I'm letting it define itself as what it wants to be. <laughs> Is it surprising that we look at a generation of young people who look and think like a field full of weeds? They can't find any direction, any purpose, any sense of why they should even be here or endeavor to continue on. Because the downside of living to fulfill your pleasures is pleasures be stop being pleasurable after a certain point. I was thinking to myself when I was looking at what Chick-fil-A is paying by the hour today, and I thought, you know, that could be a career shift for me. $19 an hour for saying, welcome to Chick-fil-A. I could do this. And I thought, I can get all the free Chick-fil-A I want. 
which then really got me excited more than getting the paycheck. And, and then I remembered, yeah, but there would come a point where I would look at that Chick-fil-A spicy chicken with extra pickles and just say, no, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm going to Wiener Schnitzel, even if it's bad German. But it's this idea that senses and, and observation would enable a young mind to decide what is right and what is good and what is true. Well, not surprisingly, absolutes became very quickly replaced by statistics. It was Masters and Johnson who came up with a great formula that said, what is selected is average. And what's average is normal, and what is normal is good. Now, you can rattle it off real quick and people go, oh, okay, whatever. But you begin to break it down and analyze what they just said, you realize, wait a minute. What is selected is average. So if I go into New Guinea and I find a tribe of cannibals, and I select those cannibals as being the average, and then I basically say, the average of eating your neighbor is good, then very basically I come to the conclusion that cannibalism is actually a very good thing. I'm thinking about it. It sounds reasonable. But in some cultures, killing your neighbor, raping and enslaving his wife, and then eating his children is normal. In some cultures, flying a 767 into a skyscraper filled with thousands of people is considered to be the highest good. It's all in what you select as being the definition of good or average. You see, doing himself like others was a contradiction in himself because he was basically, in theory, an amoralist. That means he has no, no definite decision about what's good or bad or evil. He, he doesn't, he just kind of like, it's, we're, we're just animals following our instincts, and, and so I can't make any judgments about whether something is good or bad. And that thinking has really dominated academia in our culture. So much so that when those 767s plowed into the towers in, in, in New York City, there was kind of an existential crisis in many areas because suddenly they had to deal with the issues. Maybe there actually is a thing called evil. Because up until that point, the argument was there's no thing, such thing as evil. That's just a judgment. What's evil to me may be good to somebody else. But suddenly when that evil is killing people that you love and care about, suddenly evil becomes truly evil. And people are trying to figure out, where do we go with this? You see, Dewey himself lived what we would say outwardly, at least, a moral life. But where he really became hamstrung was that he could not censure others for being immoral. Because they had surrendered, he had surrendered the high ground of what is right and wrong, good and evil, true and false that all you can do is observe and take notes. So if your community, through mutual consensus, or what he liked to call democracy, agree, those agreements are what will become the new rules. And everyone else must conform and abide to the new rules, no matter how destructive those rules may prove to be. And I just say this to you, and I hope you grasp this. This is what's happening to us right now. An effort to say that things that previously were clearly abnormal are actually normal. And if you don't agree with it, then you have to be put aside and your voice has to be muted. And that's why very significantly, the one thing that they hate despite their claims for democracy is they hate individualism. And here's a very subtle way that I, I realized most educators have no clue. In fact, most people buy into this hook, line, and sinker. Because the new way of helping kids to grow in education is to divide them into groups and give them a study project and have them meet together, work together, and then come to a consensus 
on the answer or the solution to whatever problem they're facing. And what nobody seemed to recognize is what's happening here is we're creating group think. That if I'm in a group and I completely disagree with the conclusions of the group, well, it doesn't matter because five of the six people in the group said this is the way it is, so suddenly I have to conform to that. And what we're in actually doing in our education system is destroying individualism. You see, when I went to school, you're given an assignment, you went home, <laughs> you had to do your research, write a paper on it, and present the results, this is what I think, and then other people were free to attack you, sometimes visually, but the whole point was, this is what I am saying, no longer, this is what we have come to. And this sounds so simple and so subtle, but it's even like in, in the church where you find churches will have home group meetings and they'll all read a passage and then everybody will chip in their mutual ignorance to come to a conclusion and suddenly our theology is built by committee rather than being ex cathedra, thus saith the Lord. You see, Dewey's rationalist amorality still informs the educational system of the U.S., and in many ways, that same educational way of doing things has infected the entirety of our society, including the church, including the family. And it's important for us to understand that those who were discipled by Dewey are all true believers today. They, they fervent believe that their path will lead to a better world. Technologically driven, Greed-free utopia where reparations and taxation and redistribution become the name of the day so that we can all exist in a mutual equity. You know, I was in the Soviet Union, or should I say in Russia, right after the Soviet Union collapsed, and one of the things that really struck me was that when I'd go into somebody's flat, their home where they lived, it was neat, clean, orderly, and when I stepped into the hallways and into the elevators and into the outer spaces, which nobody owned but belonged to everybody, it was disgusting. You don't take care of it because it's not you. But you see, the idea that personal property is a sign of greed is really at the forefront of this whole thing. When the World Economic Forum says, our goal is to end personal property, most people don't register in mind. They're thinking about, well, hey, I own that. No, it goes beyond that. You own nothing. And when you own nothing, you don't care about it. And I have proof of that. My car is in the parking lot and it needs a wash. And I'm wondering when you're going to get to it. <laughs> now, you may be so unchristian and not loving saying, uh, I think that's your responsibility. Hey, it's not my car, it's God's. <laughs> but the reality is when people think that something belongs to God, they build Gothic cathedrals all over Europe that took hundreds of years, some lifetimes to build because these people said, if I'm building it for God, I'm going to build it the greatest and the best I can. But this is not like that. This is suddenly reducing everything to just simply somebody else's problem. What they believe is that in order to do this, it requires a great reset, which... If you don't understand what Great Reset means, it means a reshuffling of the resources of the planet so that everybody has the same share. And once we do that, then we can build back better according to their definition of what is better. But this still means, how do you convince people to go along with this brave new world order where there's no personal property, where everybody is forced to live into, in high-rise concentration communities or camps, where the only transportation is pedal or public, and where all the resources are rationed equally so that you can only have as much as they can afford to give you. And one thing you find in those kind of socialized system is that the people on top are equal with everybody else. They just tend to be more equal. And so we're told that we have to save the earth because of climate change, uh, the social chaos around us is because of inequity. Um, <clears throat> the fact that the society is falling apart and losing its coherence is because we need to be multi-diverse in our cultural, ethnic, racial, sexual behavior. And that ultimately you end up with a lawlessness because there is no higher power to submit to other than the gun, the club, or God. 
And what's most interesting is that they use science as the source of their argument. Or as Paul said, the King James translated, science falsely so-called. It begins by convincing you that despite evidence to the contrary, the science is settled, the science has the final word, that science is all authoritative. And that's where I said last week, it's the religion of scientism. But one of the things we come to realize is that not all science is very scientific. In order to bring us to a place where we can change a culture, and we have to destroy the foundations. You can't have a great reset until you get rid of what's set there already. And that always begins with a family. Invariably, the family has to be dissolved. And historically, this has always come in not just our nation, but other nations throughout the last 5,000 years of human history has come through a sexual revolution. Oxford sociologist J.D. Unwin in his review of 5,000 years of world history, came to this very stunning conclusion. He said, if three consecutive generations abandoned sexual restraint and the protection of monogamous marriage and fidelity, that society will collapse without exception. Three generations. My generation, my children's generation, my grandchildren's generation. Without exception, those societies do not survive. Similarly, sociologist and historian Carl Zimmerman identified these six variables, these six, six factors that lead to this kind of decay. And the very first thing is this marriage loses its sacredness. In other words, it's no longer a union sanctified by God. It's no longer a man and woman vowing and committing to a sacred being to be faithful and love one another until death do us part. And as a consequence, it becomes frequently broken by divorce. So they are essentially going back to Machiavelli or, 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 or Gibbons or all these ancient historians. They all saw the same thing, that as the divorce rate starts going up, we find that the culture starts going down. And not surprising because in this age where we say it's all about parenting, that is a misnomer. It's not about parenting. It's about moms and dads. You have to have a mom. You have to have a dad. Or there is an equation, there's an ingredient that is missing in the life of children that they will struggle to compensate for. And as hard as that may be to hear, that is just simply the reality that we live in. It's not really any wonder that we find that there's such disorder within the African-American community around the country where 70% of the kids grow up without a father. 70%. We're so much better in the white community, it's only about 45 to 50%. And then we wonder, why is it that kids are going crazy? He said that feminist movements abound. Women who have been abused and misused and cast off become angry and become militant and what follows is public disrespect for parents and authority. Juvenile delinquency accelerates along with promiscuity and rebellion. There's a rejection of traditional marriage and the family responsibilities that go with it. So in our, we're, we're really boasting here saying, well, our divorce rate in America has stabilized. And you know why it's stabilized? Because the number of couples that don't ever get married makes up 35% of the homes in our country. It didn't stabilize. But we shifted from a covenant relationship of husband and wife into a contract relationship. You know the difference is. A covenant is I make a vow to God to be faithful to love my wife until death do us part. And she hopefully does the same thing. In a contract, we have a mutual exchange of goods and services. And at every time in the life of that contract, one or both party violates the terms of that contract, then the contract becomes null and void and you can walk out the door. And it's amazing how that works so that one day a young man looks at a woman who is now born of a child and all the things that go with it and say, you know, I just fell out of love. Do you realize how many times people who have been married for decades like me have fallen out of love? What that means is, well, I'm not real happy with what you just said to me right now. 
as my father-in-law said when he was asked after 73, of marriage, 73 years of marriage why he, how he managed to stay marriage that long, he said, well, you wake up every morning and you decide you're going to keep your vows. It's a simple. But finally, Zimmerman said, there's a growing acceptance of adultery. Acceptance of adultery. Sexual perversions and sex-related crimes. This is where the pseudoscientist Alfred Kinsey really stepped on the scene. Um, in the beginning of the 1930s, he started the Kinsey Institute, which was a, basically he took the ideas of Darwin's determinism, basically that we are primarily instinctual beings, that we follow our instincts, and, and he blended that with Freudian uh, sexuality that says everything we do is motivated by a sexual drive and sexual desire, and he decided to turn from the study of zoology and insects to study human sexual behavior. And what Kinsey didn't share about his own self was that he himself happened to be a bisexual, sadistic pedophile. He may have lacked objectivity, especially as he actively and voyeuristically participated in his own research. And what's really amazing is he created these two great reports that defined the typical male sexual behavior and the typical female sexual behavior, which have become textbook. And it's amazing because, well, who are the subjects of his research? He had three groups that he viewed exclusively. Pedophiles who were actively molesting children, prison inmates, and prostitutes. And from this cross-section of typical Americans, he decided what the typical sexual behavior of Americans should be. Now, what's interesting is there was no serious pushback or inquiry at the time. Every major scientific journal, newspaper, magazine published his conclusions as if they were tested scientific fact that had been validated what were some of his conclusions? Number one, he said that humans are primarily sexual animals. Their primary desire is, and motivation is for sex of all kinds, all the time. And that's why he said, therefore, and this was something that made some people stop eventually, therefore, rape is a myth. Because a dog in heat isn't being raped. See the human animal? It's not the man's fault that he rapes the woman. He's just responding to the pheromones that he <laughs> sniffs in the air, and he's just following his nature. He claimed that 30 to 40% of men had affairs, that 85% of men had sex prior to marriage, that 70% of them had slept with prostitutes, and as many as 37% of them were homosexuals. He said that sex is nonspecific. It exists on a spectrum of genders. He said that pedophilia is normal. As he watched infants being sexually assaulted by what he referred to as their partners. And they're screaming and they're crying and they're in pain and they're trying to escape. And even to the point where they pass out, he described that as being infant orgasms. Now, if you're like me, I'm thinking, how could you sit there and watch that? And yet he sat there and watched it and made notations and drew conclusions and notations. That any moral or ethical or religious restraints or restrictions on sexual behavior will create mental health issues. And he's the one from which we get that faux statistic that 10% of Americans or people around the world are homosexual even though other researchers have never been able to find more than one, maybe 0.2% of any population. Yet, we are all 10% of the people are homosexuals. Despite how outlandish and unsubstantiated his claims were, it all went mainstream. So much today that even now, 75 years after his death, I just saw an article, the father of the sexual revolution, as if this was a good thing. He freed us from our provincialism and our prudishness and let us become free to express our sexual selves. 
Well, not to be outdone by Kinsey, Masters and Johnson came along in the 50s, and what their research, I won't go into his detail, but their research basically involved paying couples to have sex in the laboratory while they, he and Masters and Johnson sat there and watched it. Uh, I called it, you know, pornography, but they watched it, and then they made notations, and they interviewed the couples about how they felt, and eventually that wasn't good enough, so they started sleeping with each other and then taking their own notations. And they're the ones who gave us that new formula, whatever is, what, what's selected is average. What's average is normal, and what's normal is good. Now, you're telling me that you take two people who don't need to know each other, and you say, I'll pay you if you'll sleep with each other. Uh, that's, that's selecting what is normal and what is average. You see, had the lies and the deceptions ended with Kinsey and Masters and Johnson, it would have been bad enough, but it continues on today. The problem of fraud in the world of scientific research is epidemic. In 1991, Science Magazine featured a study claimed to have found the gay gene. Homosexuality, its author said, is genetic, it's not behavioral, it's determined by our nature, not nurture. It's not a choice. We're born this way. Have you ever heard that? How many people have heard about the gay? Well, we know. Science has proved there's a gay gene. It took about six months after three different research groups around the world tried to replicate the findings and found out this isn't valid. There's no proof here. And then, in a science magazine, in a follow-up interview, the author of the studies admitted that he himself was a gay activist more than he was a scientist. And basically, he found the results he was looking for. But remarkably, the myth continues even within the church today. How can you judge these people? They can't help themselves. They're born that way, I've been told. The dirty little secret of the world of scientific research is that it's driven by money more than research. And fraught with fraud and deception by men in white coats. Am I making this up? Am I, I, didn't, I did not have time to put the number of reports that I found just online. But take, for example, The Lancet, Britain's most prestigious medical journal literally said much of the scientific literature, perhaps half, may simply be untrue. Half. The false discovery rate in some areas of biomedicine could be as high as 69%. The non-replication rates, in other words, we tried to see if we could get the same results by doing the same thing in biomedical observation and, and preclinical studies could be as high as 90%. Do you remember back in the 70s where there was a landmark study that showed that if you eat fat in your diet, it'll make you fat? And so people like you and me started eating a lot of pasta <laughs> without butter because it was fattening. And they found after 10 years, the average American had gained 10 pounds. Hmm, you still see it in the stores, fat-free yogurt. I pass that stuff, give me the fat. Because <laughs> fat doesn't make you fat. The pasta will make you fat. <laughs> but you see, after 10 years, it came out that the guy who wrote the study made it all up. He made it all up. Because if you get money to do a study and you want to keep on getting money to do a study, then you need to keep on coming up with results that validate what you're doing. And they find what's rampant in the scientific research community is people don't get the results, so they make up results so they can keep the funding moving forward. Barbara K. Redman, who is a medical researcher, wrote an article called Research Misconduct in Biomedicine. And she says, beyond the bad apple approach, <laughs> her words are pretty strong. She says, it's not a problem of bad apples, but of bad barrels, if not rotten forests or orchards. It may be time to move from assuming that research has been honestly conducted and reported to assuming it to be untrustworthy until there is some evidence to the contrary. 
Well, sadly, the cows are already out of the barn. I think the whole COVID epidemic is a case in point where we find increasingly that there wasn't science behind the validation. When we told if you got the vaccine, you wouldn't be able to infect each other, and then we discovered that Pfizer never tested for that. They never tested for transmissibility. And now we call it the pandemic of the vaccinated. So despite the amasking of fraud by Fauci and Francis Collins and Burks and Pfizer and the whole list of them, most people still believe the experts rather than the scriptures. Especially when they are told by the experts and their lawyers and scientists and psychologists that sex outside of marriage is harmless, adultery is recreational and inevitable, abortion is health care, homosexuality is normal, that men can become women, that children are gender neutral, and dads are non-essential. What we need to realize is that we're being led for profit by people who are very good at lying because lying is their native language and they do it for a living. You, I mean, this is a hard one for people. You look at yourself and say, I, wouldn't, I couldn't stand in front of a television camera and just lie? Yeah, because you probably have a conscience, maybe even a soul. These are soulless, conscienceless, sociopaths, even psychopaths that don't care about you or anybody else and they lie without blinking because their, their conscience is dead. It all comes down to this for me. You have to decide what's going to be the rubric by which you measure what is true and false in your world. I can tell you what the Bible says. For example, in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For all they, though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. The ultimate expression of that is we worship ourselves. Therefore, God gave them over, literally gave them up to the sinful desires of their hearts for sexual impurity. Sexual impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another. And because this God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchange natural relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Right in the Corinthians, Paul said, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders will inherit the kingdom of God. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Again, he says, flee from sexual immorality, all other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You know, I say to people, you may not believe that. You may not agree with it. But please... Don't insult me by saying it doesn't mean what it says. It's very clear what it says. And when I hear somebody claiming, well, I'm a Christian, but I am a gay Christian, all I can say is not true. Recently, I was shocked by a pastor that I know who 
began to, was writing on his website or blog basically how that we need to rethink the church's view, the evangelical church's view of, of homosexuals and to be more, more gracious and more embracing and more accepting and blah, 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 blah. And I was shocked. I thought, my gosh, where is this coming from? And as I was talking to my son, one of my sons, he said, well, let me show you this. And he pulls up his son's website. And his son is flaming gay. And see, this is one of the things I see is very subtly happening is that Christian parents are finding their kids are embracing these different sexual ideologies and they so fear having anything come between them and their children, that relationship, that they alter their theology to fit in with what they want. I've had parents come and lobby me to accept their gay kids as being Christians and become very furious with me because I said, <laughs> I can't. I either believe the Bible or I don't. And I would say to you, mom and dad, you need to be crystal clear with your kids about their sexuality. You're going to have to deal with it. You can't avoid it. The culture is jamming it down your throat. You can build a, <coughs> excuse me, you can build a <coughs> protective cloister around them. But somehow this demonic doctrine will find itself into their world, into their conversations. And rather than sit back awkwardly mumbling or avoiding it and saying, I don't want to talk about it, or let's take you down to the church and have Pastor Ken talk to you. You know, just need to be very honest in saying, you know, God calls that sin, the kind of sin that will not only destroy your life in this world, will separate you, God, for all of eternity. It's evil. And we need to pray that God can help you work through this. This morning, as I was just, you know, reading the scriptures, came to Leviticus chapter 18, interesting chapter. I always love the timing of these kind of experiences in my life. Leviticus 18, and, and what he's talking about is, he's explained to Israel, this is why I drove the Canaanites out of the land. He doesn't say I just drove them out. He says, the land itself has vomited them out. And he says, everyone who does these detestable things, the land will vomit you out. And what is the detestable things? Adultery, incest, homosexuality, transsexuality, bestiality, which had all become part of the cultural dynamic of the Canaanite world. God said, didn't say, I'm vomiting them out because they don't like me. He said, no, these are the things that they are doing, and therefore I will drive them out of the land. And then he said to Israel, if you do the same thing, I'll vomit you out of the land as well. There's consequences. It's tragic. But I think that as Christians and as Christian parents, moms and dads, we need to be crystal clear in our minds about these things. I get asked all the, all the time the question, it's a hard one. Well, I've been told by my gay son that if I don't come to the wedding and accept his new wife, partner, husband, whatever, that he'll never have anything else to do with me. I thought about that recently in depth, and I thought how Paul said, if somebody does that, don't even eat with them. I've come to a conclusion, you know, because when you go to that wedding, you are endorsing what they're doing. Do I understand how painful that can be? I certainly do. But if you go there and say, well, we're going to support the, my son or my daughter, not their lifestyle choices, please help me to know the difference. I think it's going to get really, really hard for us that if you're a parent who assumes that, well, my kids would never do that, you're underestimating the power of the dark one and the pervasiveness of this twisted morality that when our schools are mandating that we accept transsexual behavior, and even teachers who disagree with it are just simply sold to keep your mouth shut, and they'll say, well, I can't comment on that. 
As a friend of mine was explaining to me about the Holocaust, he said, you know, there are only a handful of people who refused to look the other way when they arrested the Jews and then killed them. The rest of the people just said, well, we're just going to look the other way. We'll just pretend like we don't see it and we don't know it's there. And I think God is saying to us, stop looking away. Wake up, look at it honestly and call it for what it is. Because as long as there are voices that will stand up and say, this is wrong. This is just wrong. You'll find that eventually people will stand up and say, you're right, it's wrong. Or they'll kill us. And I don't say that by exaggeration. We're finding that the assassination of politicians that don't fit in with the agenda of the left is becoming an increasing problem in our country. Of course, we're assured by the police that's not politically motivated. But nonetheless, it's just people of a certain party that tend to be the targets. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch the Kansas City Eagles. <sighs> Defeat those Philadelphia Chiefs. I put my entire retirement on the outcome of this game. I, I say that because I think sometimes we just need to stop and chuckle a little bit, you know. 